Meet Bob Olson. Bob's the author of Answers About the Afterlife and the host of Afterlife TV. A private investigator who began investigating life after death in 1999, Bob now records his interviews with experts, authors, and people who've had extraordinary experiences so he can share it all with you. Enjoy the show. Hey everybody, Bob Olson here with Afterlife TV. You can find us at afterlifetv.com. It's where we search for evidence of life after death and ask the meaningful questions around that subject. Uh, I should also tell you that I'm the author of this new book, Answers About the Afterlife. Private Investigator's 15-year research unlocks the mysteries of life after death. Uh, you can get that on Amazon and paperback and Kindle. You can download a free copy of the introduction at bobolson.com. All right, today I am so excited. Uh, I know I'm excited about a lot of things, but I'm going to tell you why I'm really excited about this in a moment. Uh, but we're going to be talking about induced after-death communication for grief and trauma healing. You'll understand what that means a little bit more in a moment, uh, but I'd like to introduce our guest who discovered this uh this new technique really is what it is. His name is Dr. Alan Botkin. Hi, Al. Thanks for being here. Hi, Bob. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this, I, the reason I'm so excited about this is because um, as someone who has been investigating life after death uh, for over 15 years, I go through periods where I feel like I've seen it all. You know what I mean? I like, oh, yeah. Or I've seen versions of other things that I've seen. And then all of a sudden I come across you, I don't even know how, how it happened, and I'm like, what? <laughs> what? This is new. This is original. This is something I haven't seen, and I get all excited about it, and I'm, and I'm doing all these promos for my new book, and while I'm being interviewed, I'm, people are saying, what's next? And I'm saying, well, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing because here's an example of why, and I, t and I tell a little bit about your, um, your book and your story. So anyways, uh Let's let's take this a little bit step by step at the beginning. You did such a great job in your book, uh, and I can show that now. But then uh, we're going to get into the interview. The, the The book is induced. Make sure I got it there. Induced after death communication, a miraculous therapy for grief and loss. I want to start before you knew anything about IADCs, is what we're going to call them, induced after death communications. Um, what were you doing before you discovered this? Well, um, before I discovered it, I had been a, uh, a clinical psychologist on an inpatient PTSD ward at a VA hospital. And I had been working with combat vets with severe trauma for a number of years. What, uh, what kind of success were you having? Was this uh, mostly psychotherapy that took years? Or what, what was the story usually? With well, um, in, in, in the early years on, on the unit, um, we, had, we were essentially um, uh, behavioral cognitive therapists uh, using cognitive behavioral therapy. And the, the, uh, uh, the philosophy of the treatment was to have the um, uh, veteran re-experience their combat trauma in a safe and supportive and non-judgmental environment. And the idea was is that um, repeated exposure to their traumatic memories would eventually um, decrease the emotional intensity of their memories. 
that was essentially what was available to us in the early years and I have to tell you it was very difficult and painful grueling work primarily for our veterans um, because when they went through this procedure during the day they generally um, stayed up all night or if they did fall asleep they had nightmares because essentially what we did is we opened them up to these traumatic memories and then they began reliving them over and over again yeah. So um, while we were getting people in touch with their memories, we um, weren't doing that much um, and in addition to that to make them feel any, any better about them. Uh, but the hope was is that over time that intensity would decrease. Yeah. All right. Uh, then at some point, tell us what year it was. You, you, you discovered, um, you ran into, you learned and was trained uh, of this something called EMDR. Why don't you explain to us what EMDR is and, and, and how that changed your work? Okay, EMDR, or Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing, is now uh, a worldwide ev evidence-based approach that's uh, accepted by professionals everywhere. Um, I and my colleagues on the PTSD unit were one of the um, first in the country and in the world to begin using EMDR on a regular basis. Uh, the idea of it was, and it sounded silly to us, honestly, when we first heard about it, <laughs> is you had the patient uh, pay attention to a certain aspect of their traumatic memory, and at the same time you got their eyes moving in a back and forth direction. Um, and the results uh, that come out of that, um, and we saw them right away, were absolutely amazing. People in a single session often could, um, we could eliminate that reliving component out of a traumatic memory. And uh, our, our patients would say things, you know, Doc, this is the first time that when I think about what happened, if for the first time it feels like it happened a long time ago and that it's finally over. Now, even though on the surface of it, it seems somewhat silly just to have someone move their eyes back and forth, but I think there are some deep um, uh, neurophysiological reasons behind it that we're finding more and more uh, about today. Um, it's, most EMDR therapists believe that it's probably in some way related to dream sleep. Yep. When we are asleep and dreaming, our brains are processing and integrating information more rapidly and efficiently than when we're awake. And it's been known for some time that this increased processing during dreaming causes our eyes to dart back and forth, which is why dream sleep is called rapid eye movement or REM sleep. Yep. So the discovery of EMDR seems to suggest that you can take a fully awake person and if you can get her to move her eyes in a similar fashion, it actually puts the brain into that higher processing mode, and we can use it when people are wide awake. Uh, I'm fascinated by that alone. This is just the beginning of your journey, but wow, you know, um, what's the name of the woman who kind of discovered this this EMDR process? Dr. Francine Shapiro. And, you know, and I read a little bit about her story online, and, and it, she sort of found that it worked for her, right. um, and, and then, you know, took it from there. This is really quite amazing, and it makes a lot of sense 
to me, I don't know, I don't know the science behind it, but to me, that there are certain parts of our brain um, that, like you said, that process things that perhaps get shut down after trauma. And yep. this kind of a process would help light those parts of the brain back up. Anything like that? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, that we have some consistent evidence that shows that, in fact, certain parts of the brain do shut off um, when a trauma is, uh, is uh, remembered. And specifically, the frontal lobes of the brain and the thalamus that sends information to all other parts of the brain. And after EMDR... We, the thalamus is working again, which means that information is being sent out everywhere instead of being isolated in one part of the brain. And the frontal lobes get reactivated, so now the memory can be uh, recalled uh, in an abstract and emotionally detached way. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Which, which fits exactly our, our clinical experiences. And, and so instead of reliving these memories, uh, people get some distance from them and they're able Absolutely. to look at them. Yeah. Absolutely. I love that. Uh, so now you took, uh, I just love the way you think. So, so you took your work with EMDR and you decided uh, to sort of tweak it a little bit uh, so that it worked right. according to the results that you were seeing, worked better. And this resulted in something called core-focused EMDR. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Okay, well, um, as I began working with standard EMDR in the early 90s, it was probably around 1990, 1991, something like that, um, there were certain parts of the EMDR pro standard protocol that didn't make sense to me. As wonderful as the procedure was, um, there were still some parts that were cumbersome that didn't make sense to me. So. And I was in a clinical situation where I could experiment. And I tried a number of different things. Most of my ideas didn't work, but I hit on actually um, six different, uh, six significant changes to the standard EMDR protocol. And after I made those six changes, uh, things started working just much better. But now, the core focused part has to do with this. Um, it's my firm belief at this point that we, all human beings, as a matter of fact, all mammals are wired for certain emotions. And they are primarily fear and sadness. And I see those as core emotions. Now, in all traumas, there's either fear or sadness going on. In sadness, the only difference is somebody dies. In a fear trauma, you have fear that you or someone else is going to get hurt or die and so on. Um, of course, many, many traumas have both components. Um, but however, all people, what we do is we surround those core painful feelings with other emotions, generally like anger and guilt. Yeah. Um, and anger and guilt has a lot to do with who, 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 we, who we're supposed to blame, yeah. whose fault is it. Right. Um, um, at the VA, we called anger and guilt the what-ifs, you know? Yeah. What if my lieutenant wasn't so stupid, or what if I had done, done something, you know, uh, something in addition? Um, maybe my best buddy would still be alive. What if, what if, what if? Yeah. Well, you can what if until you're blue in the face, and you can do therapy with that, but nothing changes. Right. 
and with the core focus, um, I found that if I directly addressed the core issue and processed it with the eye movement, we were done. In other words, the anger and guilt, when you go back and look for it, are gone because they essentially serve a defensive function. That we use our anger and our guilt to protect ourselves from these more painful cores. Yeah, it makes so perfect it was, sense. So when me. we were at the VA, we were literally um, had ten minute sessions and we were done. Wow. We, we would go right after the core, process it, and um, and essentially we were done. The anger and the guilt were gone. The irrational cognitions were all straightened out. And it's, it's my firm belief that when it comes to grief and trauma, you can't talk your way out of it. Yeah, you yeah. can't think your way out of it. You've got to get to the emotions, but not just get to them and bring them up. You've got to then do something with them, which is what the eye movement does so beautifully. It changes it. It gets those parts of the brain back involved where it can then be, be remembered in a very different way. Interesting. Uh, I just want to make sure people understand understand this part so if we're talking about sadness guilt and anger um what you're saying is a lot of times or from your experience the guilt and the anger when we're blaming other people is protect protecting us from actually feeling the sadness correct and and so they're they're masking what the true uh core of the problem is which is our sadness and so i'm sure part of uh the the challenge for you as their therapist is to get them to not focus on those other things, but to focus on the sadness because nobody really wants to do that. It's painful, right? right. Absolutely. I, um, before I would sit down and work with anybody, I would explain ahead of time why we're doing it this way. Yeah. And I would build in, I would build in certain safety measures. You know, you know, before we got started, I would say, you know, if we get to a place where this and this happens, here's what you need to do, here's what I need to do, and so on. Now, the beautiful thing about this eye movement procedure um, is that it does two things better than anything else. Number one, it brings up whatever the feeling is. Yeah. It does that better than anything, in my experience, including hypnosis. Wow, it, pu yeah. it pulls whatever it is right up. Yeah. But... but, but that's only half the job. The other half that job that the eye movement does is it then processes it and changes it in the way it's represented in the brain. So when somebody comes in and they're not ready to go after their sadness, they know ahead of time that that's what, that's what they need to do to get, to get to a better place with whatever it is. Right. And so even on a scale of 10, if they start off, their sadness is only a 2 and I give them eye movement, that two's likely to jump to a nine or a ten pretty quickly. Oh, my and, gosh. And, and now it's available, and now we can process it. Oh, that's really interesting. And, and so usually in, through this process that you do, it goes up because of what you just said. And right. then from that point, you can bring it back down. Right. But you have, to, you have to access it or bring it up before you can do anything with it. Yeah, yeah. That makes perfect sense. Uh, wow. All right. So we're, this is still, we're just talking about the tip of the iceberg here. Uh, so much more to this. All right. So you do, I got to say, you do such a great job in the book explaining this the way you did. I don't know how you chose what stories to tell, but it was brilliant. Uh, Thank you. Anyways, how, how then did you discover what 
you've now termed induced after death communications. What was your first case? Uh, my first case was a Vietnam veteran I call Sam. And uh, while in Vietnam, he became very close to an orphaned uh, 10-year-old Vietnamese girl who basically lived at their base camp and helped out with the chores and so, and so on. And he developed a very close father-daughter relationship with her. And his intention was to bring uh, the little girl named Lee uh, back to the States with him and adopt her. And in fact, he had even called his wife back in the States and she agreed to go through the process and so on. Um, but anyway, one day she was shot and killed right in front of Sam. And that was really the cause of his psychological undoing in Vietnam. Yeah. And he, he covered um, that sadness with rage. And he then started volunteering for dangerous missions and, and so on and so forth. But anyway, um, I was doing the core focused eye movement with him on his sadness. And um, it went up pretty fast, as it usually does. And he near, at one point he nearly fell out of his chair, but he did, he did the right thing and kept his eyes moving. And we processed and changed that. And part of the procedure is I have all my patients close their eyes after I give them some eye movement. And um, when we had brought that sadness way down, Sam was sitting there and a big smile came over his face. And I had never seen that before, and I wondered, what the heck is going on? <laughs> and he opens his eyes, and he tells me that Lee appeared to him privately as a grown woman with long, beautiful black hair in a beautiful white gown and surrounded by the most beautiful light he had ever seen. And then Lee told Sam, thank you for taking such good care of me back then. Yeah. And Sam responded privately, um, I love you, Lee. And then she said, I love you too, Sam, and reached out and gave Sam a hug. So Sam told me all this after he opened his eyes. And to be honest, I didn't know what to think. As a matter <laughs> of fact, I was a little worried because I thought maybe the stress of going through that trauma had caused him to somehow psychologically decompensate and that he had just hallucinated. Yeah. Well, he he left my office full of joy and happiness, and and uh, and I'd never seen that kind of res result, even with eye movement. He went skipping down the hallways. And, <laughs> um, so anyway, I told the P this is an inpatient unit. So I told the PM shift to keep an eye on Sam. I was a little worried about him. Yeah. Well, I came in the next morning, and the PM shift, and then the night shift. You know, kept did keep an eye on him, and they reported to me in the morning that Sam had a great night. He was in a real good mood, and that um, <clears throat> he got about an eight-hour night's sleep that night. My goodness. And woke up refreshed. Sometime after that, it might have been the next weekend, he went home on pass, and he lived in the Chicago area. Yeah. And he had been living in the basement, and he had a, he had a daughter at home who he had completely avoided for years yeah. because every time he became close to his daughter or even looked at her, that triggered memories of Lee's death. Right. Well, anyway, he goes home on this weekend pass, and because he's essentially resolved the trauma, 
um, his daughter no longer served as a trigger, and he um, did his best to, as he called it, making up for lost time with his daughter, and and really did a great job in terms of establishing a relationship. Yeah. Oh my. God. So 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 the fallout, or you know, the consequence, you know, kind of spread into every part of his life. It was really truly amazing. Yeah. And and and. Uh, when you were treating him, I mean, how many years since Vietnam had it been for him? Oh, I'd have to guess on this one. Yeah. Um, uh, probably uh, uh, twenty-five years, something. Yeah. Yeah. It was. It wasn't. It wasn't a year later. It wasn't Correct. five years later. It was. It was a significant amount of time. Uh, and and he has these issues that he's not able to overcome, and then all of a sudden you see these changes after this one experience. Uh, one session, that's all it took. Yeah, pretty amazing. Uh, so, uh, and I know we have to. I know we have to jump ahead here in time, but uh, the reality is, you ended up not purposely, but kind of uh, randomly by accident seen more of these correct yes you know it might have been a week or two later and i was working with another vet and uh and he too had a similar experience um because and after my session with sam i thought that was a one-time thing and i would never see it again yeah that's right so, so now here this other vet is having a similar experience and then another and then another and um and about 15% of my patients were having this experience at the end of the session. So I went back and looked in my notes of my 15% and my 85% to see if I had done anything differently in those two groups. Yeah. And I saw it. It was as clear as could be. I simply added one more extra set of eye movement at the end when they were in that state of feeling really good. Right because their sadness had just come down. And that extra set just, without any suggestion, nobody knew what was about to happen, so there wasn't any kind of leading or anything like that. It would They would just naturally go into these experiences. I didn't know what they were. It was soon after that I read the Guggenheim's book, Hello from Heaven, Yeah. and, and it was like, oh my God, this is what my patients are saying. Yeah. There's actually a name for these things. <laughs> right. Thank I God. didn't know that. I, you know, we, we never covered this in 10 years of studying psychology in, in school. Oh, God, no. Right. <laughs> so, uh, um, but when I remember um, I was so excited when I read the Guggenheim's book. Yeah. And, uh, and, um, and I started calling them ADCs after death communications from that point on because they, they coined that term. Yeah, and and I put it all into perspective, and I, I agree. I recommend their book all the time. I interviewed uh, Bill uh, maybe a year ago or so, and um, great interview, and it helped a lot of people. But yeah, I mean they were um, they were ahead of their time, and uh, he and Absolutely. Judy, and it's amazing what they came up with, and they've helped millions of people because they were able to put a name to an experience that people were having, many different types of experiences, and 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 for you as well and so uh now that you've figured out what you were doing with these 15 percent right you were able to try to replicate it right 
And uh, what was your success rate with that? Uh, believe it or not, my success rate actually jumped to 98%. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially, everyone that I was using this procedure with was, was, uh, uh, was having this experience. Okay, so that's mind-blowing. So you're going from 15% to 98%. You finally figure out what it is, and then you, is this when you decided to start calling it induced after-death communication? Uh, yeah, it was uh, soon after that. Yeah, yeah. okay. And um, what I love about it, and we should just, you know, we should mention, part, I don't think the universe, like I say the universe, sets things up by accident. Here you are, you're, you're working in a setting where all these vets have had a lot of trauma experiences that involve people who died. And uh, you're in the perfect setting to be working with something, testing something like this and figuring out how it works. Uh, you agree with that? I mean, you were in the right place at the right time and you had Absolutely. the right brain. Absolutely. Um, you know, I had some background. I had some interest in Raymond Moody's first books. Um, I mean, particularly life after life and so on. Um, and w when my patients reported, started reporting these experiences, of course, I thought maybe they were hallucinations. But to me, you know, they also sounded a lot like near-death experiences. Yeah. Sometimes my patients went through a tunnel to see the deceased. They both uh, reported beautiful, rich, radiant landscapes and um, and the, the, there was a there was a lot of overlap between the two experiences, and I th and the, I so I sort of wondered if there was some relationship there, but in 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 that sense I was kind of ready for it. Yep. Um, at least I had some background. Yeah. Um, but not a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, and so briefly, we'll make the long story short. You ended up teaching this to other people. First one then more, and they ended up having the same results, correct? Absolutely, and that was another a huge breakthrough for me and IADC was uh, finding out that this technique can easily be taught to other therapists. Yeah. I had no special powers. It wasn't me, and I was fine with that. Yeah. <laughs> but the technique itself is very powerful and robust. Yeah, yeah. It so it works across therapists. It works across patients. It seemed to work for just about everybody. Yeah, which is great. Every scientist wants to be able to replicate it. Um, yes. Yeah, that's the big thing. Unlike investigators, we, we just like to observe and draw conclusions based on all our observations. The one thing about scientists is they if they can't replicate it, they don't really believe it. So. <laughs> Absolutely right. Correct. Yeah. Um, which is, so that's great, and you, so you were able to do that. It's interesting because you do. You do talk about, um, you know, there's some differences between healing. Well, I, I don't know if you would call it healing, but um, doing therapy in, for grief and, and therapy for trauma. I noticed they, there was kind of two reasons or different reasons why IADC seemed to work so well with them. Um, and, and I don't know if I got this right. So for the grief... It seemed to be all about the reconnection. Can you talk about that? Well, um, actually, let, let me clarify a little bit. Um, grief and trauma are much more interchangeable to me um, than maybe to perhaps some other people. Yeah, okay. 
even people who are experiencing normal bereavement, and there's no real traumatic aspect to it. Yep. Um, you know, they may have troubling I- troubling images yes. of of someone in the casket. You know, didn't look like them. You know, and every time they think of their lost loved one, they just see this horrible image of the person in the casket. Right. You know, and and. That's like an an intrusive symptom, just like PTSD. Oh, yeah, yeah. And and actually, whether it's normal grief or traumatic, grief, the issue is the same. You have to yeah. process sadness. So one so, of the things, in terms of the trauma, one of the things that you're able to do is replace the traumatic memory with a new memory. Yeah, and that seemed to happen automatically. Um, without me having to do anything extra. In other words, um, let's say somebody saw his best friend uh, get, get shot in the head and his brains were coming out. It was a bloody, awful kind of traumatic image. Yeah. Um, after the ADC with his buddy, and he's looking happy and younger, and uh, um, he's got no wounds, and he seems to be in great shape, um, my vets would frequently say, you know, this is weird, but I try to remember the original traumatic uh, image, yeah. and it's really hard to get back. All I see is this smiling face now. It makes it really exciting because, like you say, there, there's healing going on that you're, you're not trying to make happen. It's just happening as a result of all this. That's pretty cool <laughs> when that happens. Yeah. Um, you know, it's all, it's all a matter of processing what the, that their inner pain and getting to it. Yeah. Um, and once it's processed, people feel frequently report feeling relief or a word people often use is peaceful. Yeah. And once they're feeling peaceful and their sadness is gone um, or almost gone, um, they're in a state where these ADC ex- experiences come very naturally. Yeah. You know, um, sometimes people, at, you know, people who have researched spontaneous ADCs like the Guggenheims and so on, some of them have been kind of slow to accept what I do mm-hmm. because they believe that all t- real ADCs are like gifts from heaven, that there's something we have no control over. I see. You're either, you're either lucky to have one or you're unlucky and you don't have one. Sure. But actually, my response to that is in IADC, we don't directly induce the ADC experience. What we do is induce a state of mind where the AD, ADC then naturally unfolds. Yeah. And when that happens, we're not really controlling it. Yeah. And well, a big belief I have is that... Um, Probably the main principle of IADC is um, sadness prevents ADCs from occurring. And so when we purposefully remove the sadness and get people to a state where they're feeling good, an and ADC experience is much more likely. I see. Yeah. And people who report spontaneous ADCs mm-hmm. do not have them when they are feeling real sad or wanting contact. They just kind of come out of the blue. Yeah. Um, oftentimes people are asleep or most often in my experience they're asleep mm-hmm. but they describe them as very different uh, from dreams yep. um, in terms of their quality and clarity and um, 
and they tend to be remembered for a lifetime as opposed to forgotten in over 24 hours. Yeah. Um, but if people are awake, they're brushing their teeth, they're putting their socks on, and, and these experiences come out of the blue. Yeah, uh, that's right. And, and, and so you've now, you, you've done this, how long, how long have you been doing this now? Since, Since about 1995. Yeah, all right. I so, first worked with Sam. All right. So, and so now you've had long enough to see if there's, just like you were sort of saying the dreams, we call them dream visitations. Um, people remember them years later, like they happened the night before. Absolutely. Uh, same thing. You're having these these long term um, benefits from this work. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, um, um, all of the data that we have. Um, seems to indicate um, much of its clinical data but we also did a research project and um, all the information we have seems to indicate that these results hold up very well over time yeah yeah as a matter of fact we don't even have exceptions to it no huh yeah all right beautiful uh, some interesting things now I'll, I'll jump around a little bit because there was just some in very interesting things that uh, <coughs> I recognize one is because it goes along with so many other things we've talked about here on Afterlife TV. But one is that sometimes the ADCs that, that you see in your work, uh, these are happening over a small period of time, like seconds. There could be seconds. that, And yet, um, for the people, for the patients who are having the experiences, they feel like it's been much longer, right? Yeah. Um there seems to be some sort of time differential that's going on here. Um, I remember once I was working with a vet and I did the eye movement to do the induction and he closed his eyes and he popped his eyes open in about five seconds and I remember thinking, well, that didn't work. <laughs> and, and then he goes on to this long elaborate explanation of what he, this ADC he experienced then I asked him, I, how, how long do you think you had your eyes closed? And he said, oh, two minutes. It was like five seconds. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and this, this goes along with, you know, anything we've heard from people who have had near-death experiences right. um, to, you know, all kinds of different uh, ADCs that, that, you know, Bill and Judy talk about in their book. Also, people are not just seeing one person in spirit. Some are seeing more than one person, correct? Uh, yes, we we always, when we do the therapy and work on the sadness, it's always in relation to one, to one loss. Yep. However, um, it's it's not at all rare and fairly frequent that in the ADC, not only is that person there, but other people also show up. But in most cases, they're related to that deceased person. Yeah. <coughs> yeah. Um, it can be. Uh, it's most often family. In other words, you work on the death of mom. Yeah. And mom shows up, and there's grandma and grandpa, and there's an aunt that died years ago, and they're all, they all seem to be together. <laughs> uh, you know, have you ever had an experience uh, with a patient where you they wanted to see a certain person, but they saw someone else instead? You know, I have heard, uh, in fact, one of Raymond Moody's early books, he, he uh, talked about a case like that. Um, and the answer is no, that's not happened. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. Well, I think I think that tells us a lot. I won't get into it, but I think that teaches us a lot. When uh, mediums uh, don't have that luxury, you know, a lot of them will say, "I can't conjure just anybody. It's a telephone without a dial. Whoever ends up being there is who we get." Right. Um, but that's why this is again thrilling to me uh, to see that kind of response that you have, even if there are one or two over the many years that you've been doing it. That's fine, but for the most part. If everybody's getting who they were hoping to get, that's pretty. Yeah. That's pretty exciting data that you have there. Yeah, you know, and I'm kind of thinking. I think there have been one or two times where somebody else did show up. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me, but if it's so so insignificant that you can't even really remember remember what those incidents were, then uh, that shows me that it's it's a, it's it's a low incidence and. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I've done thousands of cases at this point. Yeah, well, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Um, I also like, because uh, it, it surprised me as I'm going along in the book, it's, it surprised me that uh, if someone would come out of the experience where they saw a, a loved one or someone in spirit, then, and they had a question, you were able to just do another eye movement thing and they were able to go back right back in and ask their question of that person yeah that's one of the beauties of uh, induced after-death communication that is something that generally doesn't happen with spontaneous after-death communications because if if not every if not all issues are addressed yeah or resolved it's easy to just uh, give another set of eye movements and take the person back into the experience and this has happened uh at least the examples you gave in the book just seems like it's now it's just common part of the experience. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and what I, I really appreciated um, is that this leads to another thing I want to talk about, but is that if someone misinterpreted information and you thought, you thought, oh, that doesn't sound right, usually because it was in the negative, you could say, why don't you go back and and ask 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 about that and usually they recognize that they misinterpreted what they were getting the first time actually so far they've always recognized that they have misinterpreted <laughs> my my favorite case is i worked with this guy who had had other iadc experiences and this time he was working on the death of his brother and this guy was kind of a general high anxiety kind of guy um but when we went for the induction he jumped out of it, opened his eyes, jumped out of the chair and said, there's a giant claw around my neck trying to choke me to death. <laughs> well, I talked him into going back and he yeah. trusted me and he had had other ADCs. Um, so, but he did go back and he found out what that was, was his brother was giving him a hug and he, <laughs> and he misinterpreted the sensations around his neck. <laughs> that's, that's pretty funny. And a lot of people get hugs, and 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 they're not just um, you know like you know virtual hugs. They're feeling the sensation that someone's actually hugging them, right? Yeah. Um, as a matter of fact, that's something Sam said on my very first case. He said I could actually feel Lee's arms around me. Yeah. You can feel it like it's a ta a real tactile kind of thing. Mm. Um, and that was certainly the. The case with the guy who jumped out of his chair thinking there was a giant claw around his neck. He felt something there. Yeah. 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 He just wasn't sure what that was at first. Right. Uh, 
so that's kind of exciting that you can go back and 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 multiple times really uh, i would imagine is, is there a reason why someone wouldn't want to keep going back uh, you know or is it you know there's only so much time well you know th that's a good question um i've worked with many people that uh prior to their coming in to do the work they would i some of these people have said things like you know once i have an adc i'm going to i'm going to want to stay in that i'm going to want to have more and more and more and i can understand why people would say that <clears throat> but what's interesting is once people have the adc experience um and in all in really all cases they get exactly what they need yeah um their desire to keep going back kind of goes away. Yeah. I mean, they're fine with what they got. Now, that's beautiful. Uh, what a great message there is right there for all of us uh, to learn. Uh, there was one exception you had made, thought it was pretty funny, uh, about a gal who wanted to keep asking her mother the same question because it felt so good to be there. Yeah. Tell yeah. us about that. Well, um, again, I've done thousands of cases. It's hard to remember some of the individual ones, but... Um, I yeah, I remember somebody keep going back and asking the same question over and over again. And I, then I think, if I'm right, the deceased mother said, why do you keep asking me that? I already told you. Yeah. I already gave yeah. you an answer. Yeah, she said something like, like, get oh, over yeah. it or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I love the sense of humor of people in spirit. Love it. Uh, Yo, oh, oh right. I, there are plenty, there's plenty of that. There, there is, isn't there? Yeah, there's a lot. People sometimes, when they're in the middle of it, break into laughter. Yeah, do they? <laughs> yeah, I, I did one woman. I got to tell you, this is a funny one. One woman was uh, uh, working out um, an issue regarding her deceased sister. And the, these two sisters are really close, and they were always giddy and funny when they were together and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and in the ADC, they were, still, they were still acting like that with each other. Yeah. And... Uh, and then I went to induce the experience again, and I had to sneeze. So I, I held my nose so, so I wouldn't interrupt the process. Yeah. And then my client closes her eyes, and then she starts laughing and laughing, and she opens her eyes. And, uh, and she said that her sister told her that the reason I did that is because she stinks. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. Some things never change. Yeah. yeah, they're still being sisters. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's great. Um, you know, so now there's also something that you, you uh, call basically a shared experience. And I think it's the best evidence that exists for uh, the fact that these, these are not uh, a product of one's imagination. Because I know that was a concern of yours and other skeptics especially. Uh, what's the best evidence of, of that? regarding well, these shared experiences we have only very anecdotal evidence um uh the very first time it happened i had an intern uh observing me working with a, a veteran and he had seen uh iedc before as a matter of fact he was pretty good at it himself but he just uh, didn't have anything to do and asked if we he could sit in on the session and it was <laughs> fine with the vet and uh 
So here I am, I'm working with the vet, and my intern's over there um, with his eyes closed. And I kind of look over at him, and I think, gee, I hope he didn't fall asleep. <laughs> but what he was doing, he was giving himself eye movement. <laughs> and what happened was, is when my patient had his ADC experience, my intern observed the whole thing. And it was an extremely unusual ADC. It had to do with a backyard scene of an uncle who had died and uh, uh, in tremendous detail. Um, uh, It was pretty shocking when that happened. Yeah. Um, And we may have done that uh, maybe two more times, only this kind of more on purpose. Yeah, and uh, and we got the same result. I, there was a psychologist where I worked when she would do the induction, and uh, she would close her eyes and give herself eye movement, and she would observe her patient's ADC experience. Boy, I I don't. I mean, <coughs> I'm sure there's something we can learn from that. It's kind of interesting. They're not having their own experience, but somehow they're able to share this experience of this other person. That's pretty fascinating to me. I'd love to look into that more. Yeah. Now, what we need to do, and we haven't yet really done it yet, is form formally study this. Yeah. I'll actually do an experiment. And we tried it once, and it didn't work, but, I, um, but we didn't do it right. Um, but, yeah, um, that's something that's uh, sort of in the future, something um, I would certainly like to do. Now, there is an alternative explanation which is that um, somehow there's something telepathic going on. Okay. It's, not that, it's not that they're both observing the same objective reality, but it's something telepathic, okay. and, which would be pretty amazing. I, in <laughs> that's what I was thinking. Okay, even if that's it, that's pretty good, yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, and that would be interesting. Yeah, it would be hard, hard to know. I don't know how you'd figure that one out, but that's, that's for another interview. Um, for another time trying to figure that one out sometimes now i don't remember what this was about <laughs> i write these as i'm writing the book and now i don't it, it, people in spirit sometimes uh, will assist with the therapy it doesn't even make any sense to you because i don't know if you even know what i was reading yeah um <laughs> i remember working with somebody once and my patient asked a very good question and I didn't have a good answer and he had had an ADC before with his mother and his mother gave him good advice and he brought up another issue and I I wasn't quite sure how to handle it so I said you want to ask your mom (laughs) (laughs) that's that's good so we did another induction and of course mom mom had the answer he needed (laughs) okay that's right all right that's great. You just never know with these things. Oh yeah. man, I uh, I would love to just spend a week with you. Uh, and some people. Now we talked about there being other people there. Uh, I know there's been a couple incidents where living people have come through in the IADC. Yeah, those um, those are extremely rare. Yeah, and the only times they happened. Um, was very early on with IADC. Okay. It's been years ago. Um, well, actually, I do remember one of my favorite cases. 
that relates to that. And, and this was years ago, but um, a patient I was working with um, uh, had a severely retarded son. I believe he was microcephalic, and even though he was 20 years old, he never developed um, beyond a mental age of about six months or something like that. And uh, so anyway, it was actually my patient's idea. Is He said, can you use IADC to contact somebody in, you know, who's severely limited like that? Yeah. And I and I said I didn't know, but I he, the patient wanted to try it, so I was willing to give it a shot. Yeah. And we actually did. And his uh, severely disabled son came to him as whole, complete, um, and w w without any disability. Wow. And they actually had a conversation, and of course, as uh, he wasn't able, he's not able to talk. Yeah. In real life, so th but they went on and had a conversation, and then his son said uh, to him, "I'll never forget this." He says, "Don't feel bad for me because I really have it the best. I get to live in both worlds at the same time." Oh man, yeah, beautiful. That's that's nice. And then he said he went home on pass and saw his son. He said, "Boy, I'll never look at him the same way." Uh, yeah, that's right. I know <laughs> exactly. I well, so true. You know, I, I, it makes me wonder um, about intentionally trying to do the same thing with people who are in a coma. You know what I mean? So if you had a patient in who knew someone who was in a coma, perhaps they were experiencing grief or trauma around that, and maybe they'd be able to get in touch with that person. That is something I've wanted to try for many years. That's an excellent, yeah. Yeah, that would that would that would be amazing. And I, after that ex last story, uh, my guess would be that you you could. Uh, my, that would be my guess. But um, you know, you've learned a lot of really important things. I think that uh, they're all spelled out so well in this book. I can't recommend it highly enough to people. Induced, here it is again. Induced after do death communication. A Miraculous Therapy for Grief and Loss, Alan Botkin. Uh, I, I really, people need to read this book if they're interested in this subject. There's so many new things in here. And then, and yet when I say that, in a new way, you've discovered what we're learning in so many other ways. Like you say, through ADCs, through near-death experiences, through a lot of research that's been done with mediums. Uh, it's it's there it's all parallel they're all overlapping and but this is to me this is new it's a new way of getting similar information it's just it's i shouldn't say one more piece of evidence but it's one avenue toward lots of evidence uh that we've found that, that has draw the same conclusions that we've drawn in these other other ways you know i, I probably should say something before i forget you know I, I we left off. I mentioned that when I was at the VA hospital, I was I had a ninety eight percent success rate yep. in terms of inducing the after death communication. Right. Um, that for technical reasons that might take a long a long time to explain. Um, that that ninety eight percent has not held up, um, and but uh, the success rate now is about seventy five to seventy nine percent. Yep. And the good news is, is that people I train uh, are also fall in that same range. 
Yeah, and and I think um, if I read it correctly, and it made perfect sense through my own experiences, it made perfect sense uh, that the difference is the people at the VA are in a different situation uh, than the people who are maybe coming to you from the outside. Yes, and and it's that difference that makes it. And you just you explain it very well in the book, so we don't have to go through it here. But it okay. does create it's a different situation because it's different. And yeah. mostly it has a lot to do with preconceptions and expectations. Yes. That, that's, that would be probably the reason for the difference, uh, the 75 to 79 versus the 898. When I worked at the VA and I would introduce this to my, v, my combat patients, yeah. they looked at me like I was an idiot. <laughs> and they said, they would say things like, that's not going to work with me, Doc. I don't believe in that crap. Yeah, yeah. Well, Actually, though, that makes them easier to work with because when it gets to the point of doing the induction, they're wide open to this natural experience. That's right. Now I get a lot of new agey people who think they know what this experience is supposed to be like and they yeah. have beliefs and expectations that they ins try to insert into the experience. And when that happens, nothing happens. It completely blocks it. Yeah, well, you're right. You do make... Um you do, do make uh, an exception. You separate what you're doing from hypnotherapy, from, from hypnosis, um, and you do it well in the book. Uh, basically, we can just say that they're two different things. Uh, what I thought was interesting was that, you know, from way back, I don't even know how long ago, but we, we all have that image in our in our mind that hip, hypnotists don't even use anymore is the watch, you know, swinging yeah. back and forth. And I have to wonder if many years ago, hypnotists were sort of onto this and then it took a different direction and, and they got away from the eye movement thing. That is probably the best explanation I've heard. I don't think we know exactly um, how that turn can be made. Yeah. Um, but... All of our um, brainwave studies, EEG studies, indicate that, in fact, the two are very different brain states. Yeah, right. And, and, and like, I mean, anytime I've experimented with hypnosis, I mean, we don't even use, we don't use the eye movement thing anymore at all. Right. So I think they were onto it years and years ago, and they took a right turn somewhere. I, you know, I, I, I think that's probably a, a pretty good guess, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, interesting, fascinating. Um, so all the things that you've learned, uh, I thought w one of the most interesting ones, and one of the, and we're kind of ending here, but one of the best messages came from the, the things that you've learned and, ex and experienced w regarding forgiveness. Uh, what can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, um, in all cases... Um, when there uh, were issues of, uh, you know, horrible guilt and, and, and so on, and even anger, um, forgiveness has always happened. Um, and I need to per uh, go at this from two perspectives. If the deceased person was the bad guy yep. and was a horrible, abusive, drunken father that abused his kids, um, and then he dies, and then in the ADC, always, so far, that person comes through as very, very different. 
Yeah. They come they come across as for the first time very aware of the pain they caused in other people. Um, they s come across as sincere for the first time, wanting to do whatever it takes to fix what happened, mm. um, taking full responsibility, and so on. And I think the reason for that is because they have been through a life review. Yeah, right. And when it's the other way around, when it's my patient who did something awful and maybe killed somebody, sure, like an enemy soldier, which we did a lot of, yeah. Um, my patient needs to feel grief and sadness for the for his victim, mm -hmm. the same way he would for his own mother. Yeah. And so it's not an easy out. It's not an easy forgiveness and you know get off the hook kind of thing. Right. You really have to allow yourself to feel the your humanity and connect on that level with your victims. And when and when the sadness is uh, accessed and processed. Uh, forgiveness is uh, so far always come about. And what I got from your book is it's not, and this is in addition to what you're saying is it's not the words, uh, it's it's the the sentiment, and um, it's when it comes from the heart, and and when people are having these experiences, the IAD experiences, if the abuser is now deceased, they they can feel what's in their heart now and they feel the regret and the remorse about it um and so it's easier for them to be forgiving i know a lot of people that's one of the hardest things for yeah. living people to do well of course of course in a life review you experience every moment in your life the feelings you had in every moment and the feelings you caused in other people yeah so it's so for those uh you know abusive psychopathic people um, w when they die and have a life review for the first time they can feel the pain they've caused in other people yeah, that's yeah. a real eye-opener right then you're right because they're not folk. psychopathic anymore but uh, yeah so really but I love the idea that when people who are living have this experience with you or other uh, other people who do this work um, they can actually feel that sense of remorse from the person who is in spirit yes. Yes. And, and that makes it easier for them uh, yes. to be forgiving. And, um, and, and you explain again so well in the book, too, that, you know, it heals everybody. It's, it's, it's as healing for the person who is forgiving the other person as it Absolutely. is. It's healing for both. For both, both parties. And, and I'm sure you've seen some amazing results uh, for people who have the courage to do that work, because that really does take courage, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Yeah. Yeah, and um, it takes a sense of humanity and on some level a recognition that we are not all separate beings, that we are, in a much deeper way, all very much connected. Um, if people want to have one of these experiences, how, how might they go about having one? Well, uh, the very first thing you want to do is check out my website. Which is? I'm glad you asked that, which is induced hyphen adc.com okay i'll have a link below the video for that and people can go there and and what what will they find on the website well they'll find uh uh for people who want to go through the experience i have an explanation of all the particulars of how that works yeah um 
Um, and uh, I have a list of trained IADC therapists on my website that are all over the world at this point, so you can hopefully find somebody close to you. Great. Many people travel to see me for a weekend, and I work with a person on a Saturday and Sunday, which is a plenty of time, yep. and we're done. Um, also on the website, um, I have information about training for people who are already licensed, and... Um, then I have a few stories and a, a few other general things, but it, pretty much everything is explained on the website. That's great. And so th with the contact information. And they, so they can contact you through the website. Uh, again, links below the video. And, uh, once again, I'll mention the, the book, there's the book induced after death communication, a miraculous therapy for grief and loss by Alan Botkin, PhD. Um, any last words that you'd like to say? Well, um, I don't want to be a buzzkill. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, be a buzzkill. People often ask me, well, doctor, do you think that IADC proves there's an afterlife? And the way I generally responds to the, respond to that is, well, why are you asking me? I'm only a psychologist. <laughs> the, the people, the only people that have a truly informed opinion are those who have had the experience. Right. So when someone says, you know, what do I think? You know, go ask somebody who's had the experience. Yeah, beautiful. They know what it's like. Um, well, there and, you go. And as a psychologist, I'm all about healing. Yeah. That, you know, I, I work with people that suffer so profoundly, it's beyond imagination yeah. of, of the kind of terrible things that I work with. And, uh, I really don't want to engage in the debates, you know, this between the skeptics and the believers. And there's other people that do that much better than I. Yeah. And 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 plus, what I do works with people who don't believe in this stuff. That's it, right. It works just as well. So, um, I you know, professionally, I remain neutral about what these experiences quote really are. Yeah. Spoken like a true scientist. <laughs> Look, <laughs> we got people calling already, and we haven't even finished the interview. That's pretty good. <laughs> I like that. I like that you, you keep uh, that perspective. Um, and you also mentioned in the book, even if there were some other um, uh, reason for this, some other explanation of this, the, you, it could be acceptable because you see how people are being helped. And that's just amazing in itself. <clears throat> right. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I can't thank you enough. Um, I, I hope I hope more people will go out and have this experience. I got I got to do it myself. Um, I can't believe that I haven't done it yet. But anyways, uh, this was a lot of fun for me. I really appreciate you being a guest. And I, well, I thank hope you, Bob. You know, Bob, uh, you were great. You you were fun to talk with. Oh, and thank I, you. You're, you're good at this. Well, I, I appreciate. I appreciate it. it. You're very 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 kind. Uh, I'm going to end the interview, but I'm going to talk to you in a minute. So let's we'll just say goodbye to everybody. All right, goodbye everybody. <laughs> That's all for another fantastic Afterlife TV episode. Bob couldn't be happier. If you enjoyed this episode as much as Bob, please leave a comment on AfterlifeTV.com, Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube. And don't forget to check out Bob's book, Answers About the Afterlife. Thanks for watching Afterlife TV.